Hello, I'm Stephen Fry, a trustee of the Royal Academy of Arts and very proud to be so. Welcome to our podcast. It's lovely to be in a beautiful room. Uh, I, was, I was informed that one of the first lectures on Darwin's Origin of the Species was given in this room, though I think by Thomas Huxley, not by Darwin himself. I was asked to do this and I said, well, this is what I've got. And I sent the kind of short pieces I had in hand in my little grab bag, in my little gander bag, uh, to see what they might like. And they, they chose this one, and it was actually written in response to a series of paintings by the Belgian painter Luc Tiemens that were at the David Swerner Gallery a few weeks ago. And in a kind of later on, I kind of went and read it. If you're interested, we can discuss what it's saying about the kind of problematic of visual art in our culture and how that perhaps impacts on how we look at the Ai Weiwei exhibition, what it means to us, how it evokes its themes of liberty and justice, how they apply perhaps in our society today. So all of that's up for grabs. And you thought it was just a prelude to dinner. <laughs> the shore. This is from Funes the Memorious, a magnificent fragment by the Argentinian writer Jorge Luis Borges. Locke, in the 17th century, postulated and rejected an impossible idiom in which each individual object, each stone, each bird and branch had an individual name. Funes had once projected an analogous idiom, but he had renounced it as being too general, too ambiguous. In effect, Funes not only remembered every leaf on every tree of every wood, but even every one of the times he had perceived or imagined it. He determined to reduce all of his past experience to some 70,000 recollections, which he would later define numerically. Two considerations dissuaded him. The thought that the task was interminable and the thought that it was useless. He knew that at the hour of his death, he would scarcely have finished classifying even all the memories of his childhood. In the late spring of 1988, a few weeks after my mother died of cancer, a wealthy and generous friend of mine offered to buy me a return air ticket to anywhere in the world I wanted to go. I can see you're seriously depressed, he said, and I'd like to help. I elected to go to Greece, having fond memories of the little island of Antiparos in the Cyclades, where I'd holidayed in my teens. I remember that brilliant flight to Athens. True, the light quality once you ascend above the clouds is always coruscating, especially if you've risen up from the Stygian Heathrow morning. But for some reason, the sun seemed especially sharp and bright on that May morning. If I squinted, I could see individual rays etching dust motes into scintillant existence. I had a day to spare before the ferry, ferry from the Piraeus, and although it was pretty much the last thing I wanted to do, I dragged myself out of bed and took a tour of the Acropolis, cursing the hammering heat, the fine white marble dust, and the tourists 
with their relentlessly snapping and flashing cameras. I remember pausing for a moment before a 5th century BCE life-size statue of a charioteer and becoming fixated by the aerodynamic curve with which the artist had expressed the stiff swelling of those ancient abs. 48 hours later, I was installed in a bare whitewashed room on the little island. At night, I lay wound into my sheet and resembled, at least in my own mind's eye, David's La Morte de Marat. I'd neglected to bring mosquito coils with me or any repellent, neither was obtainable locally, and the subsonic whining tortured me, a foretaste of the itchy swellings it presaged. I ate alone at a dockside cafe, roundels of tomatoes and raw onion scattered with black olives and chunks of anemic feta, the whole saturated in olive oil. There was an open-air discotheque in back of the little settlement, a cracked oval concrete dance floor, a concrete bar, and a concrete ledge for the turntables. But it was firmly off-season, and if I'd cherished any ideas of my grief finding its dissolution in a new and a more eroticized love, they were to be cruelly disappointed. I stood, tossing back shots of toothpaste ouzo, while Freddie Mercury, possibly on my behalf, yearned to break free. I certainly felt trapped on anti-paros. There was nothing to do there except sun yourself, swim, and read. I donned my swimming costume, picked up a towel and a book, and went dutifully to the beach each morning. The handful of off-season tourists ranged themselves along the straggling strand at carefully calibrated distances, those with sunshades interposing themselves between the gnarled, salt-shrunk olive trees the rest of us sheltered beneath. There was no communication between us. We lay and grilled in the sun or sweltered in the shade. From time to time, one of us would arise, dust the sand from our damp thighs, and stilt walk into the lapping wine dog Aegean. I wondered, not for the first time or the last, if the other human beings strung on this perpetual string saw the world precisely the same as I. Did they squint until the hurtingly bright scene was reduced to these three bold stripes of Eve Klein blue sky, burnt umber land and burgundy sea? Did they examine the sandy palms of their hands as intently as I, searching out the individual facets of the mica grains in a perversely childish attempt to reach the limits of their own ocular magnification? I knew enough to know this. To perceive the world as it really is will always be a contradiction in terms. We've only the world given to us by senses which have evolved to aid our survival. If I saw the Aegean as wine dark, it was entirely commensurate with my fitness to write the sort of prose littered with classical allusions beloved of the bel lettrist. For all I knew, the others splayed on their towels and tatami mats, saw the sea as Ribena dark, 
or if they were the sort of interior decorators who were coming to the fore during that era, aubergine. For most of the time, we who inhabit entirely our myriad of subjective bubble worlds accept quite readily the mysterious mechanisms enabling these spheres of everything and nothing to all touch without popping. And so we bask in the now, turning from time to time to ensure we're evenly present. There was a young woman wearing a taut black bikini spread-eagled beneath the gnarled and dwarfish olive tree 30 meters to my left. Her eyes shut tight beneath Polaroid lenses. I stared at the triple tumuli of her breasts and pubis with a fixity provoked by existential angst and lust in equal parts. My yearning was speculative as much as carnal. I wished to taste her sense of smell. I was certain my mother no longer existed. Her bubble had been popped. Yet I knew she had been, and I believed she might be again. There was a world beyond or beneath or alongside, and I understood that so long as I breathed, I would always find myself on the immense staircase leading to this shadow realm. But while I might roam around on this infinitely wide flight of steps, sometimes up, sometimes down, sometimes to the right, sometimes to the left, always in motion, I would never reach it. I was as one with the handfuls of butterflies, breeze flung, which tumbled along the tide line, a pale yellow one poised on a congealed question mark of seaweed, a violet one dabbling its antennae on driftwood, a white one sipping the sweat sieved through the stretchy black fabric of the young woman's bikini. I rose up and stumped towards the wavelets, the fine sand burning the soles of my feet. I walked into the wine-dark sea, all the while concentrating hard on all the work I was doing to summon up my bubble world, the myriad short saccades of my pupils as they tracked and traced and framed, so assembling a myriad jumbled static images and the ordering of those images into a sequential set suggestive of my movement through space and time. I realized intuitively then what I came to understand many years later when I studied cognitive science, that our visual perception is best conceived of as analogous to consciousness itself, for in order to see anything at all, there must be a seer. That's who we are then the seers who prophesized the next few seconds with unfailing accuracy, and projectionists who labor to assemble a sequence of events from individual frames scattered on the cutting room floor. The eminent neurologist, the late Oliver Sacks, once said to me that for him swimming was more natural than walking, and when he swam, he seemed at last to suspend disbelief in the fact of his own physicality, a condition of embodiment which mostly perplexed and troubled him. I'm not like that now, nor was I in 1988, but then I was still young enough to have delusions of omnipotence and so suzerainty over all the elements. You, 
I would inveigh at the seas and skies and mountain ranges I surveyed. I shall overcome. I was a strong, if ungainly, swimmer and had trained as a scuba diver. Whenever I went to the seaside, I'd strip off, wade in, then swim out as far as I dared before turning back to see the shore. This was the moment I craved, when existence was revealed to me in all its confusing relativity. Bobbing in the swell, the sea became a boiling water brain over which was stretched the thin, hydrophobic scalp of the land. Figures on the shoreline caught, my, caught in my gaze were as headlice or flecks of dandruff, mere parasites and excrescences. Over it all wheeled the rampageous cloudscape. As I say, it wasn't because I was such a natural amphibian, but rather because I was prepared to sacrifice myself on this hard, cold, and salty altar, to be absorbed by its myriad mouths, even as my porous flesh sucked it up, until at last I disintegrated into the bubbly scurf, frothing the somnolent swell. I swam out to sea, calmly and steadily, using a breaststroke that sent my head porpoising beneath one wave and plunging above the next. I saw the sea turn from green to aquamarine to cobalt blue to silver blue to silvery to silver white, then vanish completely as I push my head up her skirt. Mmm, finest headphones a man can get. Flesh-filled hosiery fitted snugly to the ears, ears that hear the pulse of Poseidon's mortal daughter, Irene. I swam on and on, relishing the salt sting, the rush of the wind and the roar of my own blood in my ears. Did I want to die? I don't think so. But nor did I want to live any longer either if life was to be circumscribed by this narrative horizon of if-thens. I craved release, even as I acknowledged such release would annihilate me since the element sustaining me was above all a causal one, defined by monkey me, monkey me see, monkey me do. I stopped swimming, swirled myself around, and upright then, treading water, looked back to the shore. It was as I'd hoped. Antiparos was a brownish smear along the horizon, while I was dissolved into the water world. I trod its salted furrows for a while, wondering, with all the nostalgia of the young, for whom the past is so very precious, since they have so very little of it, whether these moments would always stay with me. And then I set off back to the shore, bobbing up and down, a fly crawling across the meniscus of reality. And as I crawled, and I crawled, but still, the brownish smear grew no nearer, and I crawled, and I crawled some more, and I still remain thrashing about in my teacup of the Aegean. For the waters had lost their wine-dark romance, and were greenish with envying the life thrumming in my chest and whistling wetly through my nostrils. 
I fixated on the faint, dark smear of the young woman under the olive tree and tried to hold fast to this bearing, but in so doing, realized the awful truth. I'd swum out far enough to have been caught by the current which flowed between Antiparos and its bigger sibling, Paros. I was being carried at a steady two miles an hour out into the open sea. I should, I thought, have danced at the deserted disco. I should have broken free. I could have asked the girl under the tree for a date of some sort, or better still, simply stayed on the beach, admiring the sea from afar. As it was, I was weighed down by Thanatos, my mother's winding sheet wound around my threshing arms and legs, her grasping and stertorous death had, I realized, been a prelude to my own gurgling expiration. It was, I thought, even as I fought for life, my color vision which had been to blame, the pretension of the wine-dark sea. I had been committed to viewing the world through the lens supplied by culture, a lens I held up to my eye as a dandy might affect a monocle. Even as I was tormented by the futility of my death and the meaninglessness of my short life, I forged this pact with Poseidon. Make of me your adop adoptive Irene. Release me from your waves and I will do without such easy certitudes of black and white and red and green and blue. From here on in, I will accept the world as it is, au naturel, stripped of its cultural couture. You may make of this bizarre compact what you will. I expect no credence, let alone sympathy. We are all at the moment of our death standing on the shore, caught in the sun's searchlight, at many arms lengths from our boon companions who face the same fate. And so we do the best we can. We are all vignettes excised from a bigger picture no one will ever see. The last hundred yards, I was drinking down drafts of the Aegean with each tortured breath. The water surging into my eyes had a silky soft gloss. To describe, but to describe it as a wine dark would have been absurd, for it had no color at all. I felt a warm hand on my quaking shoulder and rasping my chin in the gritty sand at the water's edge. I looked up through salt-stung eyes to see the girl in the bikini on her haunches before me. The material creased in the juncture of her thighs, alternate bands of dustiness and darkness. Her skin, close to, was oily and slick. Yet I could not have said whether it was pink or brown or black or cafe au lait any more than I could have said whether the sky was blue or the sea green. Color had departed from my world. And the girl's voice as she asked me whether I was okay was devoid of the semantic coloration called words. Although I understood what she said perfectly from the warmth of her tone alone. And so it has gone on, from family-run pensioni to alpine ski lodge, from Midwestern chain hotel to friends of friends, spare attic room. I have wandered 
the world's immense staircase, the one leading to this shadow realm. But while I may roam around on this infinitely wide flight of steps, sometimes up, sometimes down, sometimes to the right, sometimes to the left, always in motion, I can never reach the shadows surrounding me and so can never sweep them aside. If I see a butterfly, I can appreciate the microscopic pile of its velvet wings. I can imagine a touch so soft it could mark them with dark streaks. But the butterfly is leached out and nonochrome. The narrator of Edgar Allan Poe's The Last Fall of the House of Usher experienced something similar during his enforced sojourn at that last chance gothic resort. Painting alongside his deranged and dipsomaniacal host, he becomes aware of Usher's psyche as a mind from which darkness, as if an inherent positive quality, poured forth upon all objects of the moral and physical universe in one unceasing radiation of gloom. Usher's paintings grew touch by touch into vagueness. And while the narrator could not have known Claude Levi Strauss's characterization of abstract painting as a school of academic painting in which each artist strives to represent the manner in which he would execute his pictures if by chance he were to paint any. He nonetheless anticipates it when he says, if ever mortal painted an idea, that mortal was Roderick Usher. For me at least, in the circumstances then surrounding me, there arose out of the pure abstractions which the hypochondriac contrived to throw upon his canvas an intensity of intolerable awe, no shadow of which I ever yet felt ever yet in the contemplation of the certainly glowing yet too concrete reveries of Fuseli. No nightmare, no matter how baroquely realized, could do justice to the life I have lived for the past 27 years. If a clucking ipsissimus were to settle down on my chest and slowly grind his leather ass into my hispid belly, I'd simply be grateful for the bronzed brown glow of his diabolic heat. No, the world I've revolved through is best conceived of as an usher. A small picture presented the interior of an immensely long and rectangular vault or tunnel with low walls, smooth, white and without interruption or device. Certain accessory points of the design served well to convey the idea that this excavation lay at an exceeding depth below the surface of the earth. No outlet was observed in any portion of its vast extent and no torch or other artificial source of light was discernible. Yet a flood of intense rays rolled throughout and bathed the whole in a ghastly and inappropriate splendor. I have dedicated my life not to the colors of human emotion or the delineation of human ideas, but to a monumental history of Western culture that is entirely tonal. Of course, 
I couldn't have known as I dragged myself from the Aegean Sea that my own life work was to coincide with a remorseless pullulation of representation. Pandora's box brownie was to be opened and all the unfortunate images were to surge out. Millions and then billions, a geometric progression which culminated in 2014 with over a trillion photographs being taken, more than in all the preceding years since Joseph Nisiphon Nisipi set up his tripod. I witnessed this, the shivering into being of a new order of the epistemic, one the French philosopher Baudrillard termed the hyperreal, but took no part in it. Of necessity, unable to perceive color or shape, my life became and has remained a tenebrous one. I have spent the intervening years, sometimes further afield, but mostly revolving on a wonky go-round of decaying middle European spa towns, Baden by Vine, Karlsbad, Bad Ischl, Gula, in Rocklau, and of course, Baden-Baden. My mother had left me a modest private income, enough to survive on if I kept moving from mouldering hotel to mouldering hotel, never ordering room service, and drinking only waters tangy with sulfur. It is, of course, a cliché, this idea of the intellectual wanderer, an army of one non-combatant limping on his dyspeptic stomach. He, by which I mean I, is the bastard offspring of Dostoevsky by way of Mans von Aschenbach. He, by which I mean I, is on nodding terms with Hesse's wolfish protagonist who understands the book of life is not for everyone to read. He, by which I mean I, is a member of an effete group of Wandervogel who count Kafka among their number. After all, when not indulging in his passion for Naturheilkunde in the Taras Mountains, Franz K. was pretty much at a loss. We see each other in each other, narcissistically so, for we're faintly present in the sepia tones of mirror images, furred and oily with verdigris. For us, it's always last year in Marionabad, never this one, let alone the next. The materials I needed for my history were everywhere to be found. I had no need of archive, library, or collections, private and exclusive. My erudition came to me naturally through the pinhole of my awareness. For nothing remained within me of the becoming others take for granted once I'd been released by the Aegean. The belletristic docufictions of W.G. Zabelt perhaps capture my milieu best. I share with his occluded anti-heroes an air of immateriality. Like them, I wander the railway terminuses of far-flung provincial towns. And like them, there's little else to me, so etiolated have I become beyond a certain point of view, nothing more. This is the only witness to be born, I think. One altogether affectless, save for a pain detachment from the humanity for which we so fervently espouse compassion. 
In line with the relentless proliferation of mechanically and now electronically generated imagery, developments in neuroscience and neuroimaging have marked my life the way armed conflicts marred the lives of my parents' generation. Theirs was an era in which truth was the first casualty. Ours has been one in which such effective triage is available. Sincerity arises, Lazarus-like, from the battlefield and stalks civilian streets. It may be my tonal perspective which has rendered me so alive to these phenomena since I can date a digital image to within a day or so simply by the acuity with which I register so-called digital noise, namely the graininess or pixelation acting as a subtle time signature. Yet I have come to believe something more profound is at work here, as our comprehension of the phenomenon of consciousness itself is enlarged, even as we generate more images of the mind going about its business, thinking, hoping, wishing, and particularly seeing. For the Cartesian ghost in the machine, long since exiled to the Siberia of thought experiments, has in our own era been pardoned, recalled, and reinstalled in the rare show of our brain boxes. What can be seen without a seer? What can be known without a knower? And if, as some propose, full motion vision is generated by and consists in the analysis of still images presented to us non-sequentially, then there must be an analyzer, one able to spot the difference between a picture of a man with his arm raised, one with his arm lowered, and assume what unites them is not only the man's identity, but also his movement. Do I find something unheimlich about this cosmic coincidence between imaging the human brain and that self-same brain's addiction to images? No, not at all. The final moire separating me from the plastic and steel sarcophaguses into which these subjects have lain smudges the awful truth of just how small our ambitions have always been. And now that's all over. Our avidity is explained. We find, by the mechanisms of our own vision, Isherwood was quite wrong. He should never have said sayonara to Berlin, never allowed himself to become saturated with Los Angeles' jejune palette. None of us are cameras, but we're all projectionists, interleaving images together, cutting and splicing the map with the territory till we no longer know which is which. Of course, when I say we, I mean you, not I. Do I find something disturbing in this cosmic coincidence between the massive and exponential increase of computing power, all those zeros and ones spooling away into slick infinity, and the profound tedium vitae of the natural world, a cafard visited on the adolescent planet by its still more juvenile apex predators? Of course I do. The English have helped me with this, though, as they have with so much else. The particular quality of their hypocrisy, the yawning gulf between their milquetoast morality and their systematic savagery makes them committed carers. My mother used to say of them, in America they hate you because you're a black or a Jew or a woman, 
But in, in, England, in England, they hate you for yourself, incidental to the fact that you happen to be a black or a Jew or a woman. I know now what she meant. It's all in the tone, really. Borges writes of the English obliquely, as he does everything else. In his opalescent masterpiece, Clonukbar Orbis Tertius, he says of the tenebrous Hubert Ash, in his lifetime he suffered from unreality, as do so many Englishmen. Once dead, he is not even the ghost he was then. Borges remarks on Ash's relationship with his own father. They entered into one of those close, the adjective is excessive, English friendships that begin by excluding confidences and very soon dispense with dialogue altogether. My father, not a man easily roused, would sometimes chide me thus, I don't like your tone. If only he could see me now, lost in silent contemplation of Glenn Gould's multi-digit modulations or transfixed by the stippling of a single charcoal line. But he died a few years after my mother, a victim of, as much as anything else, his refusal to grow old. Cantonese and Mandarin are both tonal languages and I take comfort from this because if the work to which I've dedicated my life ever sees the grage of day, then its reception will be predicated on an audience capable of understanding its deafness and nuance. In English, only emotion is conveyed tonally, not meaning. Indeed, if you were to modulate tonally in English the way Chinese do in their languages, you would sound quite simply insane. It's not the same with images. To abandon shape and color to make images which are purely tonal, this has for a long time been the aspiration of our foggy islanded artists. I stress, this is not impressionism in any sense. It's not an attempt to render the way eyes paint the perceptual world into being. Rather, it's a commitment to all that's left once form and the chromatic have been banished. It's an art that captures the smoosh of lipstick on toilet paper, the waxed pattern are on display fruit, the older than gold smirch left in the sky once the sun has set, and the faint glistening aurora of smur seen through a sfumato of car exhaust. Nor has my cataloguing been confined to the visual. I've gone in search of the subtlest sonic modulations, semitones, fading into tempera aftertones and the near-infinite gradations of the scented palimpsest. In my Magister Opus, there are no fewer than three volumes dedicated entirely to the residual aromatic tones of burning leaves, smells so finely evocative that the writer William Burroughs, wrenched by them into incontinent nostalgia, wondered if this was the hit junkies are really scoring for. Certainly, my own dedication to this history of tone has had the obsessive, compulsive character of any addiction, albeit with little of the mental distress which usually afflicts alcoholics and opiumanes. After all, one problem I never suffered from was supply. There was always plenty more of the tonal 
for me to categorize and absorb. As indicated above, I spent a decade alone on digital noise and the tones of images displayed on LCDs and other VDUs. Yet this by no means exhausted the computerized repertoire, which continued to bloom and mutate, even as I noted, collated, and wrote up these notes. It may have been towards the end of that decade, one which saw me forsaking my usual peripatetic lifestyle for a daily berth at an internet cafe in the Krakow suburb of Salajvar, that I became aware of the cabal of enlightenment philosophs whose interests had so coincided with my own. In chain bistros and stuck to the back of bookshelves in independent bookstores, reproduced on promotional literature or boldlerized to serve as advertising, collected into handy volumes by reason of the propinquity of their depictions, or dumped in raffia baskets outside junk shops. Old photographs often feature natural backdrops, whether shrubbery or full-blown trees, which have been chosen for their ability to be static and artificial. Colonial officers and district commissioners look out from beneath the brims of their pith helmets. Native bearers lean lightly on their assegais. The medium anticipates its own message. The world will die. The winds will sow down into sultry putrefaction and seas will become stagnant slicks. The plant life will decay. The animals groan, topple, expire, rot. And still these gallant Edwardians will sit on caught in the eternal limelight of an instant, captured in an exposure lasting millennia, desiccated in a handful of silicon dust. Among them is a tonal inconsistency, a blot or permanganate stain spreading to suggest Rorschach-like, the scepter tossed aside on a pile of books, the corvid hunch of an aging human body, the magpie splash of a cravat, the snowy breast of a wig. They began to haunt me, these presences, and although I tried to banish them, my actions were futile, for I had all the authority of that long-dead Edinburghian procurator fiscal, who, once assured Thomas de Quincey, who was in prison by reason of indebtedness, had therein fallen into debt, had him imprisoned in the debtor's own prison for debtors. The presences were a sort of open ridicule of my attempts to list and assign suitable terms to all the tones presented in Western cultural history. For example, I had dubbed one harsh blot the meat blanket and a stippled smear the implacable egg box, but it was to no avail. Such a nominalism could be exhaustive only in as much as it pertained to the infinite, the cataloguing of the tones present in a single, not especially distinguished example of 18th century portraiture, which hangs in the National Gallery of Scotland, might take me several lifetimes. Besides, they'd got there before me with their faint pretending to provide proofs of a conspiracy against all the religions and governments of Europe, one carried out in the secret meetings of Freemasons, Illuminati and reading societies, when the truth was that the conspiracy was theirs alone. 
a counterblast against the Enlightenment, which aimed to dissolve its new dawn into an olden, twilit scene, in turbans and ruffled neckerchiefs, or lolling in handsome buckram suits, their faces are dead to me now, the lips and nostrils disjointed. Tone, it dawned on me as I slogged up the steps on the south side of Carlton Hill, is the jalousie housing the crudely colored pots. And it may in fact be only at the point it is wholly washed out that release is achieved. Joseph Brodsky wrote of St. Petersburg that, there is something in the granular texture of the granite pavement next to the constantly flowing, departing water that instills in one's souls an almost sensual desire for walking. But what did he know of winding down in Edinburgh or of the gross processes in tropic heat exchange primarily which underlie consciousness? I go now, see me go. Along the serpentine path between the trees with their foliage clumped in woolly blebs. I go now, see me go. Each switchback of my route affording me new prospects of the heavy trinkets, obelisks, sphinxes, monumental stelae seized along the way. The art gallery evolved not out of seeing, but walking. All those ladies closeted away from farouche nature, promenading up and down at Montacute House or Chatsworth safely undercover, needed something to feast their peepers on. They couldn't have known that even as nature was dragged in from the park, so it shriveled into lifeless detritus. Such is the triumph of the anthropic. Our focal point is a laser one. We take the étant donné, crumple it up, and toss it away forever. We wanted to get rich quick, but we've got dead still quicker. We crossed oceans and deserts to lay our hands on the treasure, and now we'll cross each other to keep it. Honor Blackman and lisping Peter Laurie, Sydney Green Street with a dead ringneck parakeet glued to the shoulder of his linen suit. Trust is about bodies in space, yes? Knowing which way the catwalk models, the economic migrants, and the concentration camp victims will go as they range themselves along the shoreline the shore I'm always swimming towards through the suffocating sea. Thank you. Thank you for listening. For more information about the Royal Academy, please visit www.royalacademy.org.uk.